Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I'm grateful for Dan filling in last week. As you know, Robin and I, we, we, you may know, I don't know, we made our way to Texas. Unfortunately, Robin's uncle passed away um, rather suddenly. And so uh, we, we made our way down there. So thank you, Dan, wherever you are, um, for filling in. I haven't heard it. Was it good? Did they do a good job? Yes. All right, fantastic. Wow. All right, enough with the clap here. <laughs> I'm a little offended, Al. <laughs> thank you. Well, anyway, uh, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 22. So um, do we want to turn all the lights on, or are they off on purpose? Anybody? It's easier to see. Okay, so don't fall asleep, my friends. Uh, we've been looking at chapter 22. The last time we were together, it's about two weeks ago now, and you may remember there were a series of challenges, tests, exams, that different groups of people came and brought to Jesus to really just disprove him, to, to get him to take an answer on something that half the group was going to be upset with him about, and maybe the other half would like them, but they were trying to set him at odds with the crowd. And Jesus as we looked, he handled each one of them perfectly, so much so that it wasn't him on trial anymore. It was the person asking the question that was on trial. And so, as we said, he handled each of those very well. Now, we didn't get a chance to finish the chapter. And so if you look at verse 41, that's where we left off in chapter 22. Verse 41 begins and it says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, he's the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did any dare answer, ask him any more questions. So again, they had been asking him questions. Now, I'm going to pose a question to you. And he asked them this question here about the son of David. So they had asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They had asked, whose wife will this lady be who had seven different husbands on earth? Whose wife will she be in heaven? They asked them the question of what's the most important of the commandments? And now, as we see, Jesus asks them a question. And again, it has to do with the son of David. Now, he asks them the initial question, whose son is the son of David? in order to bring them to a place where he can ask them a key follow-up question. So again, his question is, he inquires whose son the Christ will be, the Messiah will be. As you see there, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees very quickly answer, well, he's the son of David. It was universally understood that the son of David, or let me rephrase it, that the Messiah would be the son of David. The Jews knew that. The Jews understood that. And so when Jesus poses that question, I'm sure he's ready that they're going to just quickly blurt out the answer, well, he's going to be the son of David. Now, you recall David was the second king of the nation of Israel, that he replaced King Saul. David wasn't the son of Saul. Typically, the kings were the sons of the king previous. David wasn't the son of Saul. He was from a different tribe altogether. But David would go on to become the second king of the nation of Israel when Saul was removed from that place. We learn about it in 1 Samuel 15, where the prophet Samuel says, 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Saul, this day, and he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And that neighbor from a different tribe who was better than Saul, was better to rule in that sense, he was a man after God's own heart, the scripture says, that was David. And David, or excuse me, God would then go on to establish a covenant with David and with David's family. And we read about that in 2 Samuel. And so let me read this to you. This is the covenant God established with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. It says, now when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. Now, there are aspects of that covenant that apply specifically to David's successor, his son. Do you know his name? Yeah, you know his name. His name is Solomon. There's aspects of that covenant that applies applies specifically to Solomon. So if you look there in verse 12, it says that he will be the offspring after you who would be raised up and have his kingdom established. It says in verses 13 and 14 that he would build the house of God. We know that Solomon did that. He shall build a house for my name. We know that Solomon would sin. As a human, he would sin, as all sinners do. And so he is the one, when he does sin, as it says in 14b, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. So each each aspect of that part of the covenant applies to Solomon. But notice there are other aspects of this covenant that do not and cannot apply to Solomon. And so you look at verse 13 where it says, I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. That can't be applied to Solomon because Solomon is dead and gone. So obviously they can't apply to him. Verse 16, again, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, doesn't apply to Solomon because we're talking long past uh, Solomon's reign. We're talking about another offspring of David, son of David, more properly, great, 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 great grandson of David, and that's the Messiah. And so universally it was accepted among the Jews that one of the great, 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 greats of David was going to be the Messiah. And so Jesus asks this question, whose son will the Messiah be? And they quickly throw out, it's going to be the son uh, of David. Now, long after Solomon was dead and buried, about 350 years after Solomon had died, the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the Messiah. And Jeremiah says this in verses, uh, in chapter 23, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So Solomon's dead and gone, and yet it's still speaking of a son of David. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and so on. Also in that verse it says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And that's the messianic reign of the Christ, of the Messiah. That it is speaking of. And again, that's 350 years after Solomon. So when, we, when the covenant was given to David, it spoke somewhat of Solomon, but not entirely of Solomon. It looked forward 
to another. And so Jesus here, he asks the question about the Messiah, whose son will he be? They quickly respond, the son of David. And now he has his open door to pose another question to them. And I think what Jesus is trying to accomplish is ask them a question that they really can't answer and reveal, you know, you don't understand as much as you think you understand. And so he follows up with the question in 43. He says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So again, he, he asks them the first question to bring them to the follow-up question. If the Christ is the son of David, how is it then that David calls him Lord? You, a father wouldn't call his son Lord. And so how can that be? If Christ is David's Lord, how can he be his son? Now, the, So the Pharisees, these other leaders that had come to put Jesus on the spot, are now themselves, as I've been saying, put on the spot. And Jesus, instead of being examined by them, he begins to examine them, and he shows that they come up short. He says, of whose lineage will the Messiah be? They said, well, of course, David. He says, good, one for one. You guys are on a roll. He said, let me ask you a second question. If he's the son, why would he refer to him as Lord? And as we see, they can't answer. I wrote in my notes, cricket, cricket. You know, those little sounds there. They, they can't answer the question. And what Jesus has done is he's revealed that they have a partial understanding of who the Messiah would be, but they don't have a complete understanding. And by getting them to come to that particular point, he can essentially say, your understanding is so incomplete that he can be standing in front of you and you don't even know it. And so Jesus poses this question. Look at verse 46. They quickly realize this is foolish. Uh, and so it says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That was their best decision of the day, uh, was to stop posing questions. And so that setting now, it moves us into chapter 23. And chapter 23 is going to be the last of Jesus's public sermons. So we've been making our way through Matthew. You know how long we've been in Matthew? A long time, apparently. <laughs> okay, 54 weeks now we have been studying it, plus when we put Dan or other people in between or whatever. So we've looked at this book for 54 weeks. I think it's been awesome. I hope you've been enjoying it or whatever. But we've been seeing all of these, thank you, all these examples of Jesus stopping and addressing the crowd, sermons, if you will. This is going to be the last of his public ser sermons. And if you notice in verse 1, it's addressed to the crowds and to his disciples. So you have all these Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the disciples of the Pharisees that had been coming to him, and they're probably still in the vicinity. But Jesus, as it says in this particular verse here, verse 1, he now speaks to the crowds and to his disciples. He's going to speak to them about the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's addressing the crowds and his disciples. And eight times now in this chapter, I'm not sure if we'll get all the way through it, but eight times now in this chapter, he is going to reference the scribes and the Pharisees. You see the first example of that in verse 2. And so again, with them probably nearby, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees will tell you this. And he said, but I tell you that, or something like that. And as we've been taking note, the scribes and Pharisees, they're the religious leaders of Israel. They're the representatives, really, of the nation. 
And the response to Jesus, if you will, was indicative of the response of the nation as a whole to God's Messiah. They rejected God's Messiah. And so Jesus now is going to call out the scribes and the Pharisees, and he begins by describing them in a number of different ways. And you'll see, and this is basically like verses 1 through 13 or so, none of them are good. All right, he'll describe them in a variety of ways. None of them are positive. And then he's going to, from verse 13 on, begin to pronounce woes against them. Now, you could take this chapter, chapter 23, and compare and contrast it with Matthew chapter 5. And we've looked at Matthew chapter 5. You recall that Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, beginning around verse 13, going down to about verse 12 or so, Jesus will say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the this, blessed are the that. Here he's going to say, and woe unto, and woe unto, and woe unto. And if you go and you compare those, we're not going to do it today, but if you go back and you put those side by side and compare them, you'll see how very similar they are with one another. The blessings for those that are doing this and the woes for those that are not doing this. It's an interesting study and you could take a look at it. But Jesus now, he addresses the crowd. His intention, I would suggest to you, since he's speaking to the crowd and to his disciples, is to warn them not to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, the scribes and the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. His disciples, when Jesus is off the scene, they're going to be the religious leaders of the Jewish people and eventually the Gentile people as well. And so Jesus warns them, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Have I been like the scribes and the Pharisees? They would have said no. Well, then you shouldn't either. He says, woe unto them. The scribes and the Pharisees were people of great influence. And Jesus warns his disciples not to be influenced by them. So let's begin. Let's make our way through a portion of the chapter, starting in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So... Practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. By others. He, Jesus, as we said, he begins by pointing out that though the Pharisees and the scribes may say the right things, that they're not doing the right things. You look there in verse 3, they preach, but they do not practice. Now, it's not as if the Pharisees and the scribes came along and hijacked the Jewish religion. They didn't just sort of come in, they were stronger, they took it over, and now we're in charge and we're going to you know, tell you what you got to do. They didn't come in and hijack things. They were the rightful rulers of the Jewish people. As he points out here, they sat in Moses' seat, that it was passed down through Moses. So they were the rightful leaders, but they weren't following the ways necessarily of Moses. They knew what they were. They told everybody what they were, and they were correct in doing so. And so Jesus says you should respect them for their position. You should listen to them. For the things that they are teaching, now of course we've already pointed out that there, there were some wrong things that they were teaching. Jesus' point is when they are teaching you what Moses taught you, then you should listen to them, even though they don't keep those things. But you should respect their position, you should listen to the things that they 
are saying, but just don't practice what they're practicing. Don't do what they're doing. Because as he said, uh, they preach, but they do not practice. They talk a good game, but they don't walk a good game. And so Jesus warns his disciples, he warns the the crowds, the would-be disciples, that that's not what it means to be in relationship with God. To be in relationship with God is not about passing some test. It's not about getting some ribbon for all the Bible verses that you memorize. It's not about knowing what you should do. It's about doing what you should do and applying these things to your lives. And these Pharisees, they didn't do it. And he warns them, look, they set an example, but don't follow that example. Now, he gives a second example here of how they're off, uh, they're askew. Look at verse 4. It says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. And so here's a group of religious leaders that have created all sorts of rules for others to follow. Jesus calls those rules heavy burdens, but they make no effort to follow those rules or to lift those burdens themselves. So they create all kinds of burdens for other people to bear that they themselves aren't. And as the religious leaders, they do nothing to help people bear their burdens. Give me a quick example. When I was in the, where was I? I was in Honduras. We went with a group of college students uh, right after I got done teaching, and I would have never been able to do it as a teacher, and I was like, this is going to be the greatest life ever. We took a bunch of college students, we went to Honduras, and we began to minister on this little island called Roatan, very poor little island there. And we came across this particular lady who had uh, been led to the Lord. She was a follower of Christ, and this lady's particular circumstance was she was the mistress of a fella who lived on the mainland. Very common in this particular country, uh, I was told. Uh, and the, the man who lived on the mainland basically provided for her, and he would come and visit whenever he would come and visit, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so here's this lady living on this island that doesn't really have any other way to make an income for herself on the island, and now she gets saved. And people are saying, look, you can't be living with this guy, sleeping with this guy when he comes to town. you got to follow the Lord. And she says, well, how am I going to provide for our kids? How am I going to, how am I going to, how am I going to, and all these things. And so here, as we came in and we were ministering with the church that was ministering to her, we felt a strong burden to not lay a burden on her and say, hey, good luck with that. All right? you got to walk with Jesus now. Good luck with that. Go live in poverty somewhere. But instead, what we decided to do was we built a home for this lady. And the church that was there, they created an opportunity for her to earn a living for herself. So she wasn't dependent on that. Does the story make sense, what I'm trying to say? We can throw burdens on people, but we also have to help people and come alongside of people so that they can run this race well. But these guys here, they weren't willing to do that. They put heavy burdens on people. Now contrast that with what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, come unto me. All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus didn't put additional man-made burdens on people. He took the burdens from people. And as we learned when we were studying that particular passage, that yoke that is being described there was a particular yoke that was designed you took the bigger, stronger, older, more mature, experienced animal, and you paired it up with a young, new animal. And the burden was borne by the bigger, stronger, experienced animal. That's Jesus. 
And so these burdens of following the Lord are not really burdens at all because he bears the burden and we just go along for the ride with him and we learn to walk with him. So completely different from what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus calls them out for that. Look at verse 5. It says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplaces, and they love to be called, by ra- called rabbi by others. Sounds like so many of our religious leaders today, even in the Christian church. And Jesus calls them out for this. He says he calls them out because they do what they do because they love to be seen by others. Now, it's possible that you do what you do and others will see you, but that's very different from doing what you do because you love to be seen by others. And you want everyone to take notice of you. He says they do good deeds to be seen, that they may be seen by others. They wear those super big phylacteries that I mentioned. Those little boxes they put on top of their head here or they would wrap around on their hand. They wear these super big phylacteries to be seen by others. The fringes on their robes that they were required to wear. That's what the law of Moses said they were supposed to do. Well, they make theirs especially big and especially ornate and especially long so that people could say, whoa, look at that guy. Who's that? Oh, that's Rabbi so-and-so. And they do each of these things so that others would see them and call them super spiritual or something like that. Their motivation had nothing to do with God and with honoring God and bringing glory to God or anything of that nature but it had to do with people seeing them. It was about serving themselves and their own ego. And again, Jesus calls them out for that. Verse uh, six, yeah, verse six there, it says, they love the place of honor at the feast so that people would take notice of them and see them. It says there in verse, also in verse six, they love the best seats in the synagogue. They love when they come into the marketplace and everybody sort of parts and points and tells their children, that's Rabbi so-and-so. And hi there, how are you, son? May the Lord bless you. you know, all these kinds of things. And they do these silly things. And it's all about serving themselves. And Jesus warns his disciples, who themselves are going to go on to become religious leaders, he warns his disciples about not doing these things. Verse 8, he says, you're not to be called rabbi, and for you have one teacher And you were all brothers. Now the word rabbi means teacher. So he says, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you're all brothers. You're all equal. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, because you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, Jesus began by pointing out the various things the scribes and Pharisees were doing wrong. Now he kind of goes a different direction by pointing out the various things that his disciples should be doing rightly. And so don't do these things, do do these things. He says in verse 7, remember, they loved being called rabbi. He says now in verse 8, don't be called rabbi. He adds, call no man father. Don't allow anyone to call you instructor. And the Pharisees and the scribes loved these titles. They loved being called rabbi. If people called him father, they loved being called father. They loved being referred to as the instructor of the people. And Jesus says, don't buy into that trap because the whole thing uh, of this whole spiritual leadership thing was never meant 
to appease somebody's need for ego-driven uh, praise. It was never meant to be that. And so Jesus says, don't buy into it. It was never intended to be serving you or ser someone else serving you. It was about you being a conduit so that people could be pointed to, a conduit so people could be pointed to the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus says, don't do it. Now, I do not think Jesus is ultimately prohibiting the use of titles. Terms like pastor or reverend or even father or rabbi. So even though he says here, uh, don't let anyone call you rabbi, don't let anyone call you father or whatever, I don't think Jesus is necessarily prohibiting that. We see examples later on in the New Testament where Paul is referred to as Timothy's spiritual father. We see examples where the term rabbi is used. I think what Jesus is really pointing to, and, and so I don't think, I'm not totally anti-title. I don't really see a need for him. Typically, if somebody would come and say, you know, Pastor so-and-so, or well, my name's Greg, they would say Pastor Greg or whatever. I said, Greg is fine. Just, just call me Greg or whatever. So I just don't see a need for the titles. But nonetheless, some people use those here. What we must really be on our guard against is not so much the title as the love of being, of using the title. That's where the Pharisees are going off, uh, where people would give them this high praise. And so again, if you look at the way verse 6 and uh, 7 works, it says, they love the place of honor at the feast. The way it's worded is, and they love the best seats in the synagogue, and they love the greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbis, rabbi by others. And that's the real problem here. And that's what's at the heart of all that they're doing that is, uh, is askew here. And so Jesus in verse 11, he reminds them, look, this isn't about you. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. It's the same thing Jesus said a few chapters back. You remember when John and James' mom came to Jesus and they said, Lord, let my son sit one on your left hand and one on your right hand when you come into your kingdom. And then the disciples, the rest of them, got all mad because their mom beat them to the punch. They wanted to eventually pull Jesus aside and say, let us sit on your left hand and on your right hand. They all wanted to be sort of in the place of honor. They all wanted to be the place of authority. And Jesus at that time, he called his disciples to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over those they rule and their great ones exercise authority over those they rule. It shall not be among you, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. True spiritual leadership must be marked by humility and servanthood. And Jesus pointed it out in another place. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. And so if Jesus came to serve, his, his uh, servants should serve, he points out here. If he came to serve and give his life as a ransom, should any less be expected of his servants? I, I think the answer is obvious. At least certainly no. Now, Jesus then adds in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And, you know, the Lord has a way of proving this true in our lives. That whenever, whether we're acting as the scribes and the Pharisees, and we, we need to be brought down a notch, we need to be humbled a little bit to remind ourselves that it's not about us, but it's about him. The Lord has a way of doing that. And if we're following the example of Christ and we're walking in servanthood and we don't have to like push and shove to get our way to the top, but we're just serving the Lord, 
the Lord has a way of uh, dealing with that as well and causing us to rise to the place that he wants to use us on a greater scale. It's about being a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, if not here in this world, certainly within the next. Now, I mentioned that Jesus pronounces a series of woes. That starts in verse 13. There's going to be a total of eight of them. And the first, again, is in verse 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus was doing the Beatitudes, he started with a series of blessings. Matthew 5.3 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meet, you recall. And he would go on to pronounce seven or eight different blessings upon those who hear his word and put it into action. As we see now, he's going to pronounce eight different woes upon those that hear his word and do not put it into action. And so again, looking at verse 13, the first one, he says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You teach as if you are a religious leader, but in reality what you're doing is shutting the doors of heaven because you teach things falsely and you don't teach the truth of how a person enters into heaven. He says to them, you look the part of a religious leader, but you're anything but a religious leader. He calls them in verse 13, hypocrites, a term which refers to an actor on the stage. They're playing the part of a holy religious leader that you would expect, all right, well, this guy knows something about how to get to heaven. They look the part of a holy religious leader, but the reality is rather than helping get people to heaven, they're hindering people to heaven because all of their rules and all of the things they put in place have distorted the way to salvation. And Jesus calls them out for that. He says, woe unto you for this. Verse 14. Now, some of your versions may not have verse 14 in it. Do you see that there? It just goes right to verse 15. Particularly if you're reading like the ESV. Uh, we've talked about this before. If you go down to the bottom of your Bibles, if you don't have 14 within the text and you go down to the bottom of your Bible or in the center margin there, you'll see a little note that says some manuscripts do not include verse 14. And we talked about that in the past, how manuscripts are derived and so on. Here's the thing with verse 14. Let me read it to you. Verse 14 says this, if it were in your version, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. So that's what it's worded. Now, it may not be found in your particular version that you're reading. Again, it may be in the, the margin at the bottom there. Those words are almost identically written in Mark chapter 12, verse 40, and Luke chapter 20, verse 47. So whether they were in the original in Matthew's writing or not, those words were certainly spoken of Jesus, by Jesus at another point in time. And so I'm going to assume as if they were included in our passage today. Again, Jesus calls them hypocrites. And he calls them hypocrites because they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, he says, you will receive the greater condemnation. They would show up at the home of a widow, at the home of a vulnerable person, perhaps a grieving widow, the, the husband has just passed. They would make long, really long, holy-sounding prayers. They would offer stirring words of encouragement. 
And then as they were kind of wrapping up their time with that widow, they would say something like, you know, I think the best way that you could honor your husband is by writing a big check to the church. Why don't we do that for your husband? Wouldn't that feel good to do that? And they devour widows' houses. And it's wrong, and it's evil, and it's wicked. And Jesus says, woe unto you for doing so. He continues, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, again, he calls them. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's a convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So here you have a zealous people willing to go to the other side of the world just to find one person and bring that person into their form of a relationship with God. Boy, that, that zealousness, zealotry is great. I'm so glad that you have that zeal. But you're converting them to a faith which isn't going to help them. You know, I, I think about those that are in the cult of Mormonism or in the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses or any other group out there, and they'll go door to door. They'll go all the way around the world to convert people to their faith. And sadly, their faith, that faith that they're pushing on another person or giving to another person is never going to bring that person to heaven, despite how sincere or how zealous they may be. And Jesus calls these folks out here for converting people to a useless religion that is marked by legalism and hypocrisy and leaves people with a false sense of security. Jesus says, woe unto you for this. Jesus pronounces a fourth woe. He calls them blind guides in verse 16. These are tough words from Jesus, aren't they? Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, verse 20, whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon that throne. Now, Jesus had been calling them hypocrites, actors. Now he switches, he calls them blind guides and blind fools. And he gives them his reason for doing so there in verse 17. You're blind guys, guides I should say, because you instruct people. It's okay to swear by the temple and not be bound by that oath. So the idea is, look man, I swear by the temple in Jerusalem. All right, You would think if a person is going to swear to God, or they're going to swear on their mother's grave, or they're going to swear by the temple in Jerusalem, that they would be bound by that oath that they're taking. But these guys came up with this rule. No, 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 you're okay. That's like putting your fingers behind your back. You're not obligated to keep that oath. But don't swear by the gold in the temple. Because if you swear by the gold in the temple, you are bound to keep that particular oath. And then he gives another example here about the gift that is on the altar compared to the altar and all of that. And the reality is it doesn't make any sense. You create these rules that don't make any sense. You're, they're foolish. That's why he calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. You're leading people, but you, you yourself can't even see where you're going. 
He says, stop it. He says to them, ultimately, woe unto them for doing so. He is calling them out for the practice that the scribes and the Pharisees are exercising of creating a workaround of the Old Testament command to not take the name of the Lord their God in vain. Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, oftentimes we think that means don't curse. Shouldn't curse, you know, or, or even say things like, I swear to God, man. Really what it means is don't take an oath, don't take a pledge and not keep it. Don't say, look, as God is my witness, I will do this for you and then not keep that oath. That's taking the name of the Lord, or at least it's one way of taking the name of the Lord in vain, swearing falsely. And what these guys have done is they've taken that command from Exodus chapter 20. That's the Ten Commandments. They've taken that command from the Ten Commandments and they've created, as I said, a workaround. How you can get around it. How you can swear falsely to trick people, to get over on people. And we know from history they created all sorts of elaborate rules for what sort of oaths were binding and which sort of oaths were not binding. Jesus would say in another place, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop trying, ripping people off and tricking people with your little games that you play. And he makes it clear that these leaders are foolish for doing the things they're doing and that their oaths don't even make any sense. Again, he says, whoever swears by the altar swears by everything on the altar, everything associated with the altar. Whoever swears by the temple swears by the one who dwells in the temple, not the gold on it or lack of gold on it or whatever. Again, their thinking was askew and they were leading others astray because of it. And as Jesus said back in chapter 15, he says, let, these, let them alone. He says, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And so he pronounces a woe on them. A fifth woe, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Fifth woe. And Jesus calls him out in the fifth woe for paying particular attention to the most minute details tithing mint and dill and cumin, small little seeds or leaves that they are tithing out there. They're counting these little delicate little things and counting them out, all the while ignoring the weightier matters of the law. He says, you, you take your drink and you strain out a gnat. Now, we would strain out gnats because I don't want to drink bugs or whatever, but the point is there that that's an unclean insect, who knows where that gnat landed, you know, and so on. It's an unclean insect, and I would never drink anything, eat anything that is unclean. And so they strain out a gnat, but then they'll go and eat a camel, which is an unclean animal. You see, they're, they're doing these tiny little things and ignoring the bigger things, the weightier things, the more obvious things. He says there in verse 23, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like showing mercy, like being just. And being faithful, you neglect these things. The point is that they spend so much time and so much energy and focus on things that in the grand scheme of it all are really not that important, but in doing so, they pay no attention to the things that should be of utmost importance. So it wasn't as if tithing was wrong. 
or being diligent about not drinking something that an unclean gnat had fallen into was wrong. It wasn't as if these things were wrong, but what was wrong was to think that they could neglect the weightier matters of the law because they were tithing. As if they were saying, well, you know, it's okay if I murder because I tithe regularly to the church. No, it's not. You can't do that. And if you had to stop doing one or the other, let's stop the murdering or whatever. <laughs> but they thought, no, it's okay because I tithe. And Jesus says, no, woe unto you for that. Woe unto you for this sort of thinking and for this sort of practice. We have a sixth and a seventh woe. They really go together. Verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Two more woes really saying the same thing, concerned more with the outward condition than with the inward condition. And as followers of Jesus, we know this. Jesus may change our outward condition. So when we come to Christ, maybe there's a certain way we act, maybe there's a certain kind of a persona that we carry, maybe there's certain clothes that we wear, and the Lord's going to say, yeah, you know, well, let's, let's talk about that or whatever. And he may deal with the outside, but he first deals with the inside. These guys completely ignore the inside and only take care of the outside. As long as the outside is great and you'll, you'll appear like you're all right with the Lord, well, then you're good to go. We know this, that true change always begins on the inside. And then the outside comes along for the ride. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they forgot this, if they ever knew it at all. And so Jesus pronounces on them two more woes for having done so. You worry more about your outward appearance than the inward condition of your heart. And then now in verse 29, we have a final woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Imagine saying this to the religious leaders. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. At the final of the woes, he calls out these leaders for building great monuments and tombs to the prophets of old. Now the prophets of old, the majority of them, like overwhelmingly uh, percentage-wise, were killed by the Jewish people themselves. And so he said, they say, well, we build these temples, we build these monuments. Look, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have done what our fathers did to them. And Jesus says, you know, your own words have just testified against you, that these are your fathers, like father, like son. You're doing the same thing. You say you wouldn't do it, 
and yet you're about to kill the Messiah. And you're about to kill his disciples that are going to go forth and the prophets that would go forth. They say we would have no part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says that's the very thing you are doing and you will do. And so he pronounces a eighth woe on them. Now we're coming to the end of things here in the gospel. We're probably either one day or two days. We're probably two days before the crucifixion. It's probably on the Wednesday, and you have the Last Supper and stuff like that on Thursday. So we're probably a couple of days away. The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders has never been greater. There's been you know, animosity or whatever, but now we're at fighting words kind of thing. Jesus just told them they're all going to hell. All right, And so we're at fighting stage here. And what Jesus is doing is drawing an undeniable distinction between his teachings and his practices and the teachings and the practices of the leaders of Israel. And truly what Jesus is doing, he's putting before the people the same thing, and I was reading in my devotions today, the same thing that Joshua put before the people of Israel. Choose you this day who you will serve. There's another place. If Baal is God, serve him. But if the Lord is God, serve him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's putting before the people, look, you want to continue to follow after the scribes and Pharisees? As your religious leaders, you can do that. But if you agree with me that they're off and they're askew, then you can come and you can follow after me. Now, I always think it's important to apply the word to ourselves. And so just real quickly, as we look at this particular passage, yes, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you are in Christ, you're not going to be condemned to hell. Jesus Christ saved you from hell. But I do think there could be tendencies of the scribes and the Pharisees that can be found in our lives as well, that we want to be on our guard against and make sure we put out of our lives. And so as we look at some of these things, I, we have to ask ourselves these questions. As Jesus called out the religious leaders, he calls us out. Are you living out your righteousness so that you might be seen and thought well of by others. Jesus told these disciples, he, or excuse me, the scribes and the Pharisees, he pronounced a well unto them for that. At the very least, we should take it to heart and say, is that what I do with my Christianity? Do I do the things that I do, go the places I go, post the things I post on Facebook, so people will look at me and say, wow, you're really spiritual. I wish, my, I, wish I was more like you. I wish my kids were more like you. I wish my husband and my wife was more like you. If we're doing it to be seen by others, be very careful with that. Do we take all sorts of elaborate titles that set this group apart from as more spiritual than other groups? If we as a religious movement did that, we should stop doing that. But perhaps we do something like that in our lives as well. Do we set all sorts of rules and standards and either subtly or overtly communicate that these are the rules that you must follow to get to heaven? It's not what the Bible teaches, and we shouldn't be doing that. Are we a people that seek to convert people to our brand of Christianity instead of the Bible's brand of Christianity? I think that's a dangerous practice and habit of, of many in the faith. Do we take advantage of the vulnerable and spiritually manipulate them to make gain off of them? Now, look, you were here for the study, so I don't have to go through each one of these things. But I would suggest to you, take some time with it, look at it, the things that Jesus spoke against the scribes and, and the Pharisees, and simply ask yourself, are these things that are evident in my life, my life 
And if so, confess it as such and give it over to the Lord. Give it, say, Lord, you know, this is wrong and I shouldn't be doing it. Would you change me? Would you help me to be more as you would have me? You know how sadly that so many of these woes that Jesus pronounces against this, these religious leaders have been so evident within the church over the last 2,000 years. It is just really sad. And if it has been so evident over the last 2,000 years, it's a very good likelihood that it will probably be evident in our lives to some degree. And so we ask the Lord to search us out. I'll close with this verse. This is from Psalm 139. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. You know what that means? It's that there's things in our hearts that I'm not even aware of that God has to reveal. And you come to him in prayer and you ask him to reveal it and he's faithful and he's so good and kind. And he does so in such a merciful and gentle way that he might change us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, what a blessing for us to come gather as a group of believers and sit under it. And Lord... The word of God, is, it's safe for us as your believers to come and sit under. We can, we can sit completely open, completely vulnerable, and allow you to do what you're going to do because we trust you and that your word is good. And so, Lord, we thank you that this morning that you, you've done that. Hard words spoken here in this passage, but at the same time, we know they come from the heart of a love, loving father that wants nothing but good for us. And so, Father, as the psalmist said, we do pray, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Reveal to us if there's any unclean way that is within us. And then, Lord, we ask for the courage to put it aside, to put it away, and to run even harder after you. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.